0: G'day everyone. Welcome to the Spud Fit Podcast episode 13. I'm your host Andrew Taylor. I'm a crazy weirdo who ate only potatoes for all of last year and I lost a lot of weight and had a lot of health improvements and uh, had quite a bit of media attention and uh, all sorts of things going on there. So uh, it was a big year and it this is podcast is one of the things that came out of it the, the year wasn't just about trying to lose weight and get healthy it was about trying to improve myself as a person uh, and so this podcast is about trying to spend time talking to people that uh, can help me continue to improve as a person in various ways including diet and including fitness and including being a, a, an all-around better person so uh this today's guest can certainly and already has uh, helped me uh, do those things. His name is Dr. Malcolm Mackay, and he is my personal doctor. He is the guy who helped me get through last year. Uh, he guided me through, provided my medical checkups and peace of mind that came with them, and he gave me my blood tests and uh, and just lots of general advice and helpfulness along the way. So. Uh, yeah, I'm in in great gratitude to Dr. Malcolm Mackay, and it's uh, he should have been a much sooner guest than he has been, but uh, anyway, he's here today to talk with me, so yeah, no complaints, let's get it done. But first, it's been a little while since I uh have actually done a podcast, it's been a few weeks now, and uh, I've been really busy, it's uh, life is busy, and uh, you know, we've we've got priorities and sometimes I have to come first this is uh something I've been doing obviously for free you don't have to pay for podcasts but um it also means that sometimes it has to take a back seat to other things we've got bills to pay and we got responsibilities to that need to be met I need to be a good father and a good husband and uh and I I need to also prioritize sometimes the things that are going to help me get the bills paid so uh yeah that's uh that's been, that's why there hasn't been a podcast for a few weeks. I would love to do it more often. I'd love to do it every day if I could, but I don't think that's going to happen. It's a a very time consuming thing, putting this podcast together. It it takes, uh, on top of the time to uh, organize an interview, it it takes quite a few hours to actually put it all together. But anyway, I'm not complaining, I'm just explaining. Uh, The point is that something's got to give, so I'm not uh, I'm not 100% sure that I will continue do, doing this podcast. I, I hope to, uh, but basically I need to uh, find a way to free up some time so that I have more time to be able to do this. Uh, one of those things might be uh, starting a Patreon page. A few people have told me about Patreon. It's a, it's a page that you can start where... Uh, where fans of somebody's work can uh, contribute money to support them. So I haven't started that. I'm weighing that up whether or not I want to do that. But uh, yeah, if I if I do do that, if I do continue the podcast, I'll probably continue it with a Patreon page and see if that can help me, um, the people that appreciate what I do, to uh, be able to contribute and help me do it more. Uh, anyway, that's enough about me. Uh Point is, I enjoy doing this. I love doing it. I want to be able to do it more, and hopefully, I can figure out a way. and And it's also just an apology for being a few weeks since the last one. But thanks everyone for listening. Thanks for your support. Enough out of me. Well, not quite enough. I'll introduce the podcast a bit more. But first, uh, the Dackery is the sponsor. The reason I have a sponsor is because it's my wife's company. <laughs> so the Dackery. The d-a-k-k-e-r-y dot com, the dackery In Australia, dax are short for, well, tracksuit pants, gets shortened to tracky pants, track pants, tracky dax, dax. Uh, These are the world's most comfortable tracky dax. They are designed by artists and they are made of 100% organic cotton and bamboo and they are the most luxurious tracky-dacks you'll ever put on your bum so go to the com and get yourself a pair uh, now back to today's guest dr. Malcolm Mackay as I said he was my personal doctor he helped me through last year with all my medical checkups and tests and etc etc Malcolm the reason I went to him was because uh, I thought it was pretty weird to do, and it is pretty weird to do a potato-only thing, and I didn't think just any doctor would be able to handle that, so I tracked down Malcolm, uh, knowing that he was uh, very big on a whole food plant-based diet, so I thought potato wouldn't be too far out for him that he'd he'd be able to support me, and I was right. He was very supportive from the beginning. We'll talk a lot more about that in the podcast, but... uh yeah, just a little bit more about him. He's been doing a whole food plant-based uh, way of eating and lifestyle for well over 30 years now. He's extremely fit as well. He's an amazing athlete. So we talk about both of those things and uh, and we talk about his his journey uh, to whole food plant-based eating and, and his life as a doctor and an athlete uh, as a whole food plant-based eater. If you want to find out more about him, you can go to his website, Whole Foods Plantbased Health.com.au. And it's, an, it's actually a fantastic website. I send people to it all the time. Anyway, that's enough of an introduction. I've been talking long enough. Let's get on with the podcast. Here is Malcolm Mackay. <laughs> All right, Malcolm, welcome to the podcast. It was, uh, it's a long overdue one. We should have done this a long time ago, but anyway, life gets in the way. But here we are now. We're uh, having a conversation for the SpudFit podcast, finally. So welcome.
1: Thank you, Andrew. Thank you for having me on your uh, podcast. And uh, I would have rather have been first because I follow on now from John McDougall, <laughs> Dr. Goldhammer, Justin Dustin Rudolph, a yeah. whole list of uh, uh, well-known uh, plant-based experts.
0: Well, in my opinion, you belong next to them. So don't worry about that. It's all good. Maybe you don't have the same... Uh, name as them not as many people know who you are but they 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 should in my opinion so hey well, not nothing to worry about let's do it anyway okay andrew <laughs> all right <laughs> so um yeah there are not many uh plant-based doctors in australia and uh and this is uh it's an interesting story to me about how someone from australia where there's really not much uh in the way of plant-based anything 30 years ago, gets into plant-based nutrition at all, let alone um, using it in medicine. So let's just go back to the start of your journey for a minute. And um, yeah, how, did, how did you come to be interested in eating only plants?
1: I guess I came from a family that um, gave a lot of emphasis on how important food was important for the body and mind. Mind yep. you, it was like protein and meat and eggs and dairy, yeah. Um then I went to medical school and by about third year medicine we had one cardiology lecturer who talked about the uh the inevitable process of atherosclerosis. That's all the gunk and scarring that builds up in arteries leading to heart attacks, strokes, um, loss of legs, impotence, etc. And for a twenty-year-old, these gruesome slides of what would in what the inevitable of what would happen with our arteries as I got older, w- was was not a pretty sight. And at that point, I was um, um, getting back into the distance okay. running that I'd been good at when I was at school.
0: And how how were you eating at that point? What was your diet like? Were, you said you were you know you ate healthy foods, and your family emphasised. Good foods and how it's good for the body, but like, what did that mean to you at, before that point in time? Um, uh.
1: <clears throat> I wasn't, I wouldn't, I can't remember very clearly, yeah, cause so many decades. It is ago. a long time, yeah, but um, no, I don't think my diet would have been appalling. You know, yeah. I did tend to like whole grain breakfast cereals, yeah, uh, I wasn't all that keen on bacon and eggs. My family sort of pushed them on me, um. <laughs> You know, I was living in a hall of residence and the, the, the meat was pretty awful and it wasn't really encouraging anyway. Um, so I think um, I did have a propensity sort of vaguely towards, you know, whole grains and fruits and eating some vegetables and things. I wasn't a pure junk food addict.
0: Yeah. So you were eating like most most uh, normal, inverted commas, people uh, in today's society would have considered a reasonably healthy diet anyway, but yeah, you still had some animal Probably products, reasonable, but not yep. excellent. Yeah, okay.
1: And, um, yeah, so there was that lecture, and um, uh, in the same era or, or the same semester, another lecturer in public health told us about some of the um, indigenous populations of the world, like the um, uh, the people of Highland Papua New Guinea, who... Had a very low fat, very low salt, etc. Diet. I.e., they ate pretty much just sweet potatoes. Yeah, I, I did
0: some research on them myself before I decided to do my spud Fit challenge. It was those Papua New Guinean Highlanders were, you know, one of the things that I looked into before I made my decision. So, yeah, interesting that mm, that was part mm, of mm, your mm, your uh, learning mm. process as it, well. It was
1: very much a part of my journey, and uh, and and you know. I don't understand why all the other students didn't get it. Like the, mm. the heart disease risk factors were all around us. Like everyone was eating too much salt, too much fat, too much animal fat, um, uh, processed food, et cetera, too much meat, uh, um, you know, not, not doing, not exercising enough. Uh, um, and so when I learned about these um, Papua New Guinea people living on sweet potatoes, I sort of thought, aha, so this is not an inevitable disease. Mm-hmm. And from that point on, and then I soon discovered there were other populations that were somewhat similar. You know, they might eat something different like rice, but they were basically eating basic plant-based, very low-fat, starchy food, not adding all the SOS, the sugar, oil, and salt. And that led me on a path where when we did other diseases, when we looked at diabetes or breast cancer or bowel cancer... I would always be thinking, hmm, I wonder if this is really a worldwide thing. You know, are there people who don't? Are there, there are populations in the world that don't get as much of these diseases or get none of them? And whenever I looked, it was always pretty much the same factors. That is, the people in the world that ate more meat and dairy and eggs and processed food got all, all of these diseases in in great amounts, and those people in the world who lived on, um, you know, basic um, Basic, um, sust. Sorry. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that that were basically <laughs> yeah. lived on the um you know the starchy plants that they grew. Yeah. Um, often had none of these conditions at all.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's. Uh, I just find it fascinating that, you know, you you're in a, a class of I don't know a hundred students. Well, it was example. a small
1: medical school. We started off with sixty four.
0: Okay, so out of sixty four people, you've got one that decided to just. Look a little bit deeper into the research and find out you know what what the relationship could be with diet and you you know it seemed like you're maybe the only person in the group that <laughs> took that link between heart disease and uh and you know the Papua New Guinean and highlanders and and then just went down the rabbit hole with it. I wonder it, it fascinates me like you said, I don't know why everyone else didn't go down that path with you Like it, it was a strange I, thing
1: I think um. You know, when I get information, I tend to think it through and process it, you know, and if you hadn't sort of thought deeply and thought, hmm, inevitable heart disease, hang on, population without heart disease, mismatch, mismatch, yeah, yeah. think think about this. And uh, I don't think everyone always sort of, um, you know, processes the information like that. Yeah, and, and I don't claim to be... Uh, <laughs> I yeah. don't claim to be brilliant in sort of recognizing this while I was in medical school. You know, countless yeah. people before, John McDougall, Nathan Pritikin, you know, anyone mm. who's looked closely at the medical literature a- and put aside their, their bi- cultural bias and their personal preference, you know, would, would find the same thing. Mm. Um, I think some of the other students, you know, some of them, I think people sometimes pick this up to some extent and think, oh, yeah, eat more veggies. But it's like I dive down the rabbit hole. Right, I'm just going to eat whole plant foods. I'm just yeah. going to eat brown rice and oats and potatoes and beans and vegetables and fruits. But I think other people just, you know, only a bit cautious. They don't even want to put their hand down the rabbit hole. They don't want to sort of yeah. uh, um, give away their cherished, you know, um, dairy foods and their chicken
0: and things. Um, yeah, it's a it's a tough thing for a lot of people to, uh, to I guess people feel responsible and... Uh, it's hard to hard to put put words to it, but people um, are confronted by the fact that maybe they've been making choices that are not so good for them, despite you know their best efforts. A lot of the time, people think they're doing the right thing, and to discover that it might actually be hurting them, it's a hard thing to take in. And maybe that's maybe they just resist change because they don't want to admit that they've been doing something that was wrong this whole time.
1: I think you're so, really onto something there. Um, I i, I, I Consider that I see that in patients, that, that um, to accept that what they've been doing, um, you know, is not the best thing for their health, and in fact, you know, has perhaps led to some of their medical problems, is a hard thing to cope with, because, you know, it can bring, it can carry with it a lot of personal guilt. I mean, I, I don't think people are guilty, patients are guilty of, you know, deliberately poisoning themselves and giving themselves acne and diabetes. They just got the wrong information. They just were in the wrong culture. But, yeah, yeah, people do get very sensitive about it because it raises some guilt, like, oh, I've got it all wrong. And also raises guilt, like, um, oh, am I stupid? And I think when we um, – <coughs> often people look at medical experts, um, doctors, various people educating in nutrition, and often we point at them and say, well, you're being sponsored by Meat and mm. Livestock or Dairy Australia – and we often think that it's the money or you just want to get more patients to do bypass um, operations or, or stomach surgery on. But, you know, I, I think some of the people are rejecting this because they would have to sort of face up to what that they got it wrong, that their mm. culture got it wrong, that their peers got it wrong. And yeah. e- even in there's, – there's a particular group of doctors. I was a, a member of this environmental group of doctors and um, I've had – Jenny and I had discussions with some of the sort of committee members and things and they were not at all receptive to the idea that, that uh, part of saving the environment would be um, um, changing to a plant-based diet. And yeah. it wasn't because there was any money in it or anything else, you know, they, they, weren't, they weren't dairy farmers. It was, it was just it was too hard for them to consider that um, the, they got it wrong, that our culture got it wrong, etc.,
0: yeah, well yeah, it's it's a uh, I'm reminded of a saying, uh, I can't remember who it was now, maybe Mark Twain or something like that, said this uh that it's it's easier to convince someone, no, hang on, it's easier to fool someone than it is to convince someone they've been fooled. <laughs> and uh, I think that probably applies that you know people just don't want to they don't want to accept that maybe uh maybe they've been lied to or maybe they yeah, they've had the wrong information the whole time. Uh so while you're at at university and studying, did you talk to your lecturers or your classmates or anything about what you were doing or what you what you thought was the right way to go as far as diet goes did you how did the, and if so how did those conversations go
1: yeah look i I think I was probably a bit annoying uh, and I was oh, yeah. probably a bit annoying i've probably often been quite annoying in this respect um in, in that uh you know yes I would be telling them and yeah. and uh, um Sort of a year or two after I discovered it, um, someone brought to my attention the uh, the some books that Nathan Prettykin had produced, like the the Prettykin Program for Diet and Exercise, and that was great because that, that reassured me that uh, that I wasn't as mad as my uh, classmates <laughs> thought I was. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, that sort of set me on a, on a path to sort of being a, a great fan and an advocate of the Pritikin diet. And boy, did I ear bash a few friends and relatives and anyone else I cornered yeah. <laughs> at social functions about, about you know, why the Pritikin diet was the way they should go.
0: Yes, yeah, so Pretty someone who I have heard of lots but I've not, Read a lot about myself, but it seems to be that everyone who uh, has been doing this for a long time, it always comes back to Prettykin uh, as Prettykin and you know one or two others. So what can you tell me? Enlighten me a little bit about what it was that Prettykin did that makes him so special that. Everything. Nathan yeah. Pritikin showed,
1: yeah. um, <clears throat> was so far ahead of his time and showed such perseverance. There's a McDougall uh, recorded lecture by Nathan Pritikin of how he um, f- found out about his, his the diet and its effects on health. Nathan Pritikin was an engineer who was privy to um, post-World War II data. that And the the paradigm at the time was that heart disease was due to stress. And so he he saw this wartime data and he, he looked at it and he was someone who, again, just thought things through and said, well, look at this. Look at these populations who are being firebombed and invaded. They're going to have lots of heart... Oh, no, their their incidence of heart disease plummeted. Okay, yeah. there's something else going on there. Oh, yeah. they're on rations, he thought. Um, and Nathan Pritikin then you know, looked at... Learned about some of the other populations in the world that are that are heart disease free, like the Tamahamara Indians of uh uh, of Mexico who, who, who are incredibly fit, you know, kick this wooden ball for sort of days as a, as a yeah, like ultra game. marathon runners, aren't ultra they? marathon yeah. runners. Well, they're, they're close relatives across the border. Um, the Pimu native Americans in the U S are really fat and sick and have lots of diabetes and mm. disease. So Nathan Pritikin then got heart disease at a fairly early age and he applied it to himself H- and, uh, he emulated the diet of some of these. You know, he thought about the wartime rationing. He looked at people like the Tamahamara. And so he went on a starched based very low-fat diet. And And uh, the Pritikin regression diet, the strictest form of it, uh, is, is close to either totally or close to a vegan diet. And it's got no added oil and it's based on um, starchy food. So... so um, it's pretty close to what we would now call a whole foods plant-based diet, except yeah. that he had, a, he had a maintenance diet that, that allowed a very small amount of animal products. Okay. But still no oil. Yeah. So and, it's and
0: pretty pretty ish then. Yes, but, yeah.
1: but Pritikin was not a doctor. And yeah. so, you know, ah, okay. he, he, he tried to put this idea forward and no one had taken any notice of him and the medical profession would be critical. He ended up publishing books. He opened the Pritikin Longevity Center and, and he had people working with him and medical people working with him who actually published some of the data and the incredible results they got in terms of taking people who, you know, airline pilots who are losing their jobs and reversing their heart disease of, okay. uh, you know, t- getting people off most of their medications and, and uh, you know, putting their diabetes into remission
0: yeah interesting uh that's yeah obviously when you introduced him you said he was an engineer but it didn't click to me that he was actually that's an engineer not a doctor or a medical professional or anything just yeah someone unrelated making all these discoveries and doing all this work is makes it an extra level of uh of incredible to me (laughs) so that's cool is there anyone else uh that was part of your research or influenced you in the beginning other than Pritikin like was McDougal around then or well, obviously he was around but was he someone that came across your radar at that point in time or
1: McDougal passed across my radar after I, some years after I'd found Pritikin
0: Yeah
1: um McDougall did cross my radar Yeah
0: um,
1: and, and I don't know why I didn't sort of uh, grasp onto more of McDougal's material Yeah but he certainly crossed my radar the Pritikin Health Association uh there was in the when I graduated, um, um, the Pritikin Health Association of Australia had just been formed. Oh, right, yeah, and it was actually very, very active. There were several thousand members across the country. Uh, there was a guy called Ross Horn who, who wrote a book about reversing heart disease, uh, who was involved with, with it. Um, Robert Di Costello's father, Rolet Di Costello was involved with it as well. And we had a very active branch in South Australia. And, uh, you know, sort of this is going back to sort of um, the the sort of mid to late 1980s. And um, for several years, we had monthly meetings with guest speakers, sometimes myself, but often, you know, we had a gut microbiome expert speak to us way back
0: then. That is way ahead of the time, isn't it? Because that's sort of like... That's the big topic these days, the gut microbiome. And, you know, 20, 30, 25 years ago, 30 years ago even, you, you were already talking about it then. Right so, back
1: then, uh, like Dr. David Topping from CSIRO yeah. um, recognized that the human colon was uh, there to ferment food and process food and involving bacteria. And, and I remember he made the statement, he said, humans are like cows back to front. In other <laughs> words, cows ferment their food in the rumen up the front of their gut. Oh, as yeah. humans ferment their food with bacteria in the uh, latter bit of the intestine.
0: Yeah, right. That's interesting. Um, so you mentioned that uh, for people that are not from Australia, which is probably a lot of people listening, you mentioned Robert DiCostella's dad. Robert was, uh is a f- probably the most famous Australian marathon runner of all time. Was his dad a runner too? Is that something was there some sort of influence for you because you're obviously you love your running was that was he having him involved in that group some sort of influence or was there something about this that you wanted to improve your running performance was that part of your your reason yeah it was really
1: about improving my running performance in fact uh, that that was part of my impetus for uh, um as you said, going down the rabbit hole and and just ditching meat and dairy and oil mm. and going on completely, you know, starch based um, whole grains, legumes, potatoes, etc. Diet um, was that I wanted to improve my running. I'd got back into running. Um, I'd been a runner at school, a distance runner, yeah, and and, um, and it certainly made a difference to my running. Uh, I think in 1980, I, I ran my first marathon. Uh, it was a two thirty nine. Right, two thirty nine. <laughs> yep, yeah. Holy, uh, n- wow! <laughs> uh, and then within a year, I first marathon, <laughs> two thirty nine. That's yeah, incredible. I, I had I had the time. I was I was running this event with a friend. And he wanted to qualify for some event, so he had to run less than two forty. Yeah. So I had all the splits written on my uh-huh. arm, and I wasn't knowledgeable enough to know that that was very optimistic. So I just did it.
0: Yeah, right. So and, you were like pacing him, trying to help him get to that time. Yeah, right? yeah. yeah. I was.
1: I was. I, had, I, was, I just thought oh, I will just stick to this time. Yeah. And. Um, I think about in that that year. I also came third in the um, Adelaide Marathon. I ran a two thirty two for that one. Wow!
0: I, so I knew you were a good runner. I didn't realize it was it was that good though. That's pretty incredible. <laughs> so,
1: and and I, I really do think that um, that changing to uh, you know a starch based, uh, plant based, low fat diet. I, I think that that really helped me to you know perform as well as I did in uh, running and later on some triathlon.
0: Yeah, well, especially from what you talked about earlier about heart disease, it, it makes sense that, you know, to be a, an endurance athlete, uh, that you need a good strong heart, you need clear arteries so that your blood can flow properly and deliver oxygen around your body and, you know, that's that's of primary importance if you want to be a good endurance athlete. So, uh, yeah, it makes sense that, it, that having all of that working as best as it can would help you with your running um, and obviously you found that, so... Mm. Yeah, and,
1: and I think it's no coincidence that, um, traditionally the, um, you know, East African runners, the Kenyans, the Ethiopians, Tanzanians, um, traditionally, um, you know, uh, ate a very much a starch based diet, eating mm. things like ugali, you know, maize meal or, or some other, uh, grain.
0: Yeah. You yeah, know, well, people that, uh, people that follow me, uh, on social media or whatever lately would have noticed that I've been getting into running. So, uh. Let's talk about running then, Okay. since, you, since you're yeah. a running yeah. expert. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I've sort of, for a long time, I've had dreams of doing a marathon and, uh, you know, for most of the times that I've dreamt about it, I've weighed way too much and I'm still a little bit overweight, but, you know, still still dropping a little bit. But um, anyway, the point is that these days, suddenly it seems like it's within reach. It's something that's possible. So, yeah, what what do you have recommendations for me how do you train what what do we what should i be doing
1: <laughs> you know I, I was i got back into triathlon from about 2006 through to 2012 uh, after many years of actually not competing in any uh endurance events but mm. i always ran several times a week i never yep. never quit running ever um but I've also got a bit of life balance in, yeah. in that and my partner likes to go to the gym and, yeah. and she's uh, she's a swimmer, so we do a couple of swimming squads a week. Yeah. Jenny's away for a couple of days, and so I didn't go to this morning's swimming squad. Ah. I went running instead. <laughs> um, I think when you eat a healthy diet, when it's anti-inflammatory, when you're fueling up on all those carbs, when you're not damaging the artery with all that chicken and yogurt and olive oil, um, I, I think you can you can get results with a lower mileage. You can yep. actually get get results w- with a, without doing a huge um, number of kilometres of running.
0: Okay. So.
1: And some of the things, but I think you need to be consistent. And uh, I, I suppose uh, there might be some weeks where I'm only doing two decent runs in the week, and plus maybe a little bit of treadmill warm up in the gym. But if I'm really training for any event, it needs to be about three times a week. Yeah. And you need to put in the fast running. Like most times when I go running, I will put in at least a couple of kilometers, you know, at race pace. Yeah. And so that keeps your body conditioned and teaches your body both, you know, nervous system wise and muscle wise and heart wise to be able to run at that higher pace that you will be using in a race. Yeah. I also think that if I'm I'm training for an event um, that's slightly longer, if I'm training for a, a half marathon, I'll actually run a half marathon a week. Yeah, when, okay. I, when I was training for the Gold Coast Marathon last year, obviously you can't go out and run a full marathon, but um, for many weeks I'd go out and run um, 30, 32 kilometers as my okay. long run for the week. Yeah, right. Um, so
0: you don't you don't shy away from the long runs then. A lot of people I've spoken to will just do like one or two of those 30-plus kilometer runs before the You know, it depends marathon. how
1: competitive you are. Yeah. Like a lot of people leading up to a marathon will sort of, gradually do a couple of kilometers more every week and get up to thirty thirty kilometers or so, you know, a couple of weeks beforehand. But yep. see I'm competitive. So <laughs> yeah. um you know, training for a half marathon, for example, I will be doing twenty one kilometer weekly runs for many, many weeks so that yeah. I try and get comfortable at that speed.
0: Yeah. You well know, <laughs> I've been I've been running uh probably three times a week on average and I I've got this weird scooter thing. I think you've seen it. I've this seen year. it, push scooter. I
1: used to have yeah. one as a child. I, I used, did, to, yeah, yeah, right. used to ride around the <laughs> suburb a lot on my little push oh, scooter.
0: there you go. So my plan at the moment, I got a knee injury from football and it gives me a little bit of trouble. But I basically I started off doing, I want to do two hours of training, right? So I started off doing 10 minutes running until my knee got a little bit sore and then I'd get on the scooter and do an hour 50 minutes on the scooter and it's gradually built up to the point where now i seem to do about an hour 15 hour 20 before i get my knee a little bit sore and it works out to be you know 14 15 kilometers and then i switch to the scooter for the rest of it so i figured that i would just keep doing that until i get up to two hours of running two to three times a week and um yeah, just see what happens. Do you think that could potentially get me through a marathon, doing two hours, two to three times a week?
1: Uh, I think that's that yeah. would be too much, oh, too okay. many long runs. Yeah, right. yeah, I'd only do one run of two or three hours, only do one two or three hour run per week.
0: Okay. So I, I should stick with one hour of running and then one hour of scooting or just one hour of running and leave it at that?
1: It's a bit up to you whether <laughs> okay, you bring the scooting okay. in as well. But um, as far as the running goes, um, you know, I'd maybe doing do a couple of up to one hour runs and, and just the one long run per yeah. week. Okay. The other thing I did in the lead up to the la- last run I did was the uh, Run for the Kids Fun Run, mm. a 15-kilometer oh, yeah, run. Yeah. And uh, my training for that was, uh, part of my training was I'd go out and I'd run with my Garmin watch, I would run five kilometers in my training run. At the pace I intended to run at for
0: the longer distance. Hmm. So, so that yeah, that seem that makes sense. So, if I was, if let's say I wanted to run a marathon in four hours, I got to work out that pace and try to train at that pace. You think? Yeah. yeah.
1: And I'd be uh, building up to say doing ten kilometres, maybe even seeing it's yeah. a marathon, probably more like ten than five kilometres yeah. at the pace that you plan to run the marathon at. Yeah. And on race day, try and be really strict for the f- in the early parts of yeah. the race. I, I, f- <laughs> I fell apart in my marathon last year. The pacing oh, yeah. person went out too fast, <laughs> and 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 I felt. But I thought oh, I feel comfortable at this. I'll do that. It'll be just fine. And of course, I wasn't in a good state for the yeah. last five kilometres.
0: Yeah. All right. Uh, that's yeah. That's not going to be fun. I imagine suffering from thirty-seven kilometres onwards. <laughs> um. All right, so anyway, enough about my self-indulgent training tips here. uh, I've got got a little little dog trying to muscle in on the action here. (laughs) He's an attention seeker, that cavoodle. Hello. It's a vicious thing, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) He's a
1: carnivore. And, uh, you know, if you look at the dog's mouth, he's got all these teeth that are for ripping and his back teeth are not grinders. They're like dicing tools. It's really funny seeing him eat a carrot because he can. It's like, (laughs) trying to eat a carrot with a set of shears rather than grinding <laughs> yeah. and he can't move his jaw from side to side um yeah. because you know he, he's oh, a, he's yeah. a he's a carnivore actually he's yeah. he's a true omnivore the dog yeah. a dog's a, a car, primarily a carnivore that can eat some plant foods yeah, and right. i often use uh, pictures of my dog in uh, presentations because <laughs> my partner jenny and i um do some uh, uh presentations on the uh why, what, and how of a whole foods, plant based diet?
0: Yeah, yeah. I actually, I, I went to one a few weeks ago, and I was well. I went to most of it. I had to go and take my boy to go and watch his first football game, which he ended up leaving because he didn't like it. But, Thanks, for, <laughs> but it thank good. you
1: for bringing the <laughs> potatoes along.
0: <laughs> anyway, um, so let's uh, let's fast forward a bit then. So you've, you've spent uh, thirty thirty years or so as a uh, As a plant-based doctor trying to get people to eat more plants and stuff and then out of the blue one uh, one morning in early january last year this uh big overweight depressed guy walks into your office and says hey i'm gonna eat potatoes only for the whole year can you supervise me (laughs) what 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 went through your head then (laughs)
1: Quite happy to supervise you, but um, I didn't get it, Andrew. Yeah. I didn't get the food addiction, you know, the... the uh, You know, I understand that, that moderation is a lousy strategy. Like, yeah. you never tell an alcoholic to drink in moderation. And, and uh, you know, I'm oftenly, often uh, immorally amused that some of our weight loss experts preaching moderation mm. are themselves overweight. <laughs> but I, I didn't get it. And so my first reaction was, well... You know, I don't know if you get all the nutrients. Why don't you eat just a little bit of broccoli a spinach, a few berries? I remember yeah. even saying that when the yeah, project that, came yeah. to my office, I even said that. Um, it took me a while to get it. I, I think my my contribution in the end to to what you actually did was, well, all right, Andrew, it just uh, add in some sweet potatoes. It just so happened that that in, in the few weeks before you'd come in, my partner Jenny. Was studying uh, doing a graduate certificate in nutrition at Deakin, Mm. and she'd actually drawn up some tables looking at what would happen if you ate, you know, a day's worth, maybe 2,000 calories of a particular food in the day. How did that food shape up? You know, what, you know, did that food look like it would provide all your day's iron or all your day's protein? How much fiber would it contain? So she'd she'd drawn up these little charts for several different foods. And one of them happened to be potatoes. So when <laughs> I went home that night and Jenny was able to say, well, look, I've, I've got this chart here. Let's have a look at it. Um, and, uh, you know, I never thought it was dangerous. Uh, I remember someone, uh, um, a university Professor, I think he was, you know, made some public statement like that's a dangerous diet to do—just <laughs> eat potatoes. It and
0: wasn't. Just, there was plenty of people that <laughs> made those sort of statements. Yeah,
1: <laughs> and I know I was, you know, a little, always a little bit concerned about nutrient deficiencies. But dangerous, dangerous is like drinking protein powder drinks mm. or going on an Atkins diet. That's dangerous. Not eating potatoes um interesting thing that unfolded though in terms of the uh, the nutrient adequacy of potatoes was uh, and and it made a good point that i think we should all all uh, recognize when we do dietary analysis and try and you know look at the nutrients in our food is that according to the nutrient composition tables potatoes had no fats and mm. they had no vitamin b6 um, a lot of plant foods have almost no selenium and iodine, not because they don't have it, because no one's measured it. Yeah, okay. And so when you look in a, a food composition table and a food looks deficient in particular nutrients, especially the micronutrients, things like selenium and iodine, um, often it's the actual actual database that has the deficiency rather than ah. the food. So your experience with potatoes was I tested your blood and there was plenty of B6, someone else did a fatty acid analysis and you were not deficient in omega-3 or omega-6 essential mm. fats. So that that, that, an inter- that was an interesting point that came out of that.
0: Yeah, well, uh, yeah, like you said, I, I had a lot of criticism, especially early on before I'd uh, been going long enough to show that it was a healthy thing to do. But uh, why don't we just go through some of the criticisms then? My, my personal favorite, uh, I was going to mention names, but I'll leave names out of it for now, but... Uh, my personal favourite was a, a very uh, prominent celebrity dietitian said that uh, she was worried about me getting bowel cancer from a lack of fibre in my diet. So, what what do you think? <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, yeah, yeah. I, I think if I read that, I'd probably you know do sort of a face palm action. and yeah. <laughs> look over at Jenny. Yeah. Um I find myself doing a face palm so often when I'm reading reading our local uh, medical uh, media. Um I think uh, the obvious thing there is potatoes do have dietary fiber. Yeah. And potatoes also have starch and and uh you know if the celebrity dietitian had gone and looked at the CSIRO produced um fabulous animated video called The Hungry Microbiome she mm. would have seen that the those resistant starches the starches in food like potatoes um are actually the very thing that that powers uh, healthy gut microbes and um, fights against or prevents the formation of cancer, and, yeah. and in terms of fibre, um, yeah, I think potatoes are moderately high in fibre. I'd have to get out Jenny's chart to confirm <laughs> this. They obviously definitely have some. Um, yeah, and
0: if you're, if you're eating only potatoes, then yeah, it, as long as you're eating enough, then you get enough fibre, as far as I can tell. Anyway, yeah, yeah. I would say so as well.
1: Yeah. And um, you know, the, there's there's some studies in um, of. Uh, 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 South African black people uh, who were eating a pretty lousy diet. They were eating maize meal, but it was fairly refined maize meal. Mm. Uh, and lots of starches, but no meat. no None of the things, you know, none of the animal protein foods. And uh, they demonstrated a very low incidence of uh, bowel cancer just by the fact that they were eating starch. And when, when Jenny and I do some of our plant-based presentations, we actually show... Uh, um, a graph that's been drawn up in reference to the resistant starch and the starch containing food, and there's a relationship from country to country that the the um less starch that's consumed in a country or region, the more bowel cancer there is
0: all right that's uh that's another bit of research that i haven't uh haven't read but that's interesting too um all right so a lot of people uh, were worried. That, uh, that I was going to pro- possibly get scurvy over the course of the year. Was that something that you were ever <laughs> worried about?
1: Um, <laughs> no, no, I know potatoes have some vitamin C and you only have to open up a nutrition composition table to see they have vitamin C. And then it's like, protein, what about protein? Everyone's yeah. worried about protein. Why is everyone worried about protein when the only protein deficient people in Australia are um, um, not eating because they're anorexic or really sick and everyone else is getting enough protein Never see protein deficiency without calorie deficiency, and nearly everyone's fiber deficient, and yet they're trying to choose high protein, low fiber foods.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting, interesting one because uh, yeah, I, uh, that brings up another point that a lot of people said. You know, in the low carb community, people uh, obviously said, "Oh, it would have been better off if you if you chose bacon or eggs instead of potatoes." So, you know, that's a perfect segue to uh, to ask your opinion on that. Uh, what do you think? <laughs> should I have done done bacon only instead of potatoes only?
1: You know, bacon <laughs> is a class one carcinogen, as of last year, World Health Organization. Bacon, the bacon, the processed meat cabinet in the supermarket um, should at least have big health warnings. This food <laughs> promote, is known to be a class one carcinogen, promotes diabetes and heart disease. You know, I can imagine one day walking through the supermarket and seeing the uh, processed meat all in plain packaging, like cigarettes.
0: Yeah, that's uh, good luck with getting that one passed. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I, um, I think that could be a that that'd definitely be a worthy thing to do for sure.
1: Back to the um, the bacon and and etc. Um, yeah, there seems to be a a definite resurgence of uh, this idea of eating a, a low carb diet which means eating more fatty food and, and more protein food. And it usually means eating more animal products r- rather than uh, flaxseed and nuts. Yeah. Um, and it's sort of a face palm. Like even when people aren't really focusing on trying to eat a lot of fat, as soon as they start trying to eat a lot of meat or of trying to eat less carbs, they automatically like eat more chicken and cheese and oil. And uh, uh, so many patients who I speak to, you know, the women are all avoiding carbs and eating, therefore, more meat and fat to get thin. And the men are doing the same to get big. Mm. And it's going to be a disaster. You know, things, some of the cancers that this will cause, the artery disease that's building up, some of these processes take, um, you know, a decade to develop. So we could be faced in Australia with a tsunami of uh, uh, cancer and heart disease and the like from from um, all this low carb, high protein business, and I'm appalled with some of my colleagues who have jumped on board with it. And they look at the minutia and they go, "Oh, well, look at the Krebs cycle and look what insulin does. And if you have yeah. more insulin, you'll put more fat in those cells." And it's sort of, it's a lot of uh, bull, really, what they're talking about. Yeah. Um, in the real world, it's not how it happens at all. Um, and I'm appalled when uh, when I read professionals say, well, I mean, one way you can treat diabetes, one option or one option for losing weight is a low carbohydrate, high meat diet or higher protein diet. These are exactly the diets that make people sick, that led people to get diabetes to start with, that'll give the diabetic person heart disease, that'll give them kidney failure. Um, uh, it, it's actually quite appalling what's happening in nutrition mm. in Australia at the moment. And, and it's not there's no no sign that it's turning around yet
0: all right so how did how did we get to this point then why are we in this situation where you know most of the country seems to think carbs are bad and you know you're better off eating high protein for whatever you know paleo who you know all these different words for low carb high fat high protein eating How, how did we arrive at this point what's happened
1: a lot of plant based experts say that people like to hear good news about their bad habits. Oh, yep. butter is back. Oh, high protein. Meat's actually good for you. So, you know, people are naturally attracted to those rich foods and uh, <coughs> they like, you know, they like to hear good news about their bad habits. Mm. Um, I also think that there's some, uh, been some industry push and industries in there giving medical funding medical education um industry has um meat dairy and egg industries have been uh, advertising a lot harder to um g p s to doctors in recent years
0: all oh, right so oh yeah i guess you get you get the industry publications that most of us don't get then so they they advertise in the doctors' magazines do they
1: they certainly do like everybody needs um uh, milk, yogurt, and cheese. Yeah, right. And lots of egg advertisements, uh, and and sponsorship of uh, little programs you can do to get uh, pers- professional development points.
0: Really, I thought that was something that only happened in the US that you know that um, that industry can fund at uh, ed- continuing education.
1: No, you can go to read read. It's read publications. Yeah. A- and uh, on their website, they actually uh, a- an announced how much it would cost f- to put together to help f- to get them to put together an education program mm. uh, based around your product, whether it's uh, really? a blood pressure drug or a heart drug or food. And they'll, and, and they'll sort of put together an education program around that. And then GPs will be able to do that program online and get professional development points. But you, the industry, you, the pharmaceutical manufacturer or food industry, can actually pay to for them to uh, help put a program together.
0: Wow, that's the first I've heard of that. That's, yeah, mind-blowing. It reminds me, of, again, back to the video I made about the CSIRO low-carb diet book. I, I found, I can't, I, off the top of my head, I can't remember, but there's a funding body and, uh, and I can't. N-H-M-R-C or something? N-H-M-R-C. Yeah. So I found a page on their website where they, they say, if you want to fund a study but don't want to do it directly, you can give the money to N-H-M-R-C and tell them who to give the money to. So then it looks like the funding is coming from N-H-M-R-C rather than coming from Cadbury or something, you know? So it sort of puts a step in between, uh, in between the funder and the recipient of the funding. So... Yeah. My partner,
1: Jenny, is a, a university, you know, research-based librarian, <coughs> is always interested in, in following up, uh, you know, where did the funding come from? And sometimes it's really obvious, you know, that like there was a study in Melbourne looking at uh, mood in women and it found that a Mediterranean diet with red meat improved women's mood compared to a crappy diet. <laughs> you can guess who sponsored that—a Mediterranean yeah. diet, the meat and livestock Australia in there—and and, but that that was declared. Um, so often, researchers will declare that they got funding from Dairy Australia, for example. Sometimes, researchers will, um, research will have been done with funding, and then someone will conduct a meta-analysis where they look at a whole lot of other studies. Mm no funding for that no conflict of interest but of course we've spent the last 10 years getting funding and doing work and we'll be quoting those studies you yeah know. but with, with these front organizations yeah yeah this is sort of something that's really growing in that you can have uh, parent public health public good bodies promoting nutrition and you know some of it being good promotion of nutrition like eat more fruit and vegetables but um um there can be this subtle funding from industry. There's one uh, big Australian group that we, uh, we were puzzled because they got $70,000 a year only from all their fundraising and yet they were able to have offices in most of our capital cities and have staff. Oh, right. Now, obviously, there was some uh, big industry funding providing those offices. So this idea yeah. of having indirect funding and having a front view of funding and a funding coming from some foundation, coming from something else... Um, yeah, often disguises the uh, the real source of the money.
0: Yeah, and it's funny that they're so out in the open about it too. They're just happy to say, yeah, you can give us funding and tell us where to send it. And that's, <laughs> uh, it's yeah. I don't, yeah, I don't know why people don't put two and two together a bit more with these sorts of things. But anyway, another another low carb argument that I that I get, and I'm sure you've got plenty of times as well is about diabetes and insulin resistance and all of this so uh yeah can you what's your take on the diabetes argument then that low carbs better for diabetes because uh you know diabetes is a problem with digesting sugar properly so take out the sugar and you got no diabetes so how, how does that how does that work for you? That's I've, I've, yeah, I've yeah, probably da- oversimplified things. Yeah, there, yeah. Diabetes
1: yeah. is. Uh, we'll, we'll stick to type two. Type two diabetes yeah, yeah. is a is a problem where your body no longer responds to your insulin, and, and uh, sugar is not removed from the blood and put away. Carbs are not sort of the the, the carbs are not able to be removed from blood and stored or processed. Um, and so, if you went on a, on a, you know, Atkins, on a very low carb diet, your blood sugars would be normal, but you'd still have the same metabolic problem that your body um, was unable to process the, uh, the glucose, the carbohydrates.
0: Mm. That's and a really interesting point, actually, because you, so what you're saying is that you, even though your blood sugar would, the level of blood sugar would be okay, the reason that the sugar got too high in the first place, that the, the cause of it is not gone. Yeah, that's right.
1: You'd still have your body; it'd still be highly insulin resistant. You'd still have um, a number of many other associated metabolic changes in the body. You know, changes to cholesterol and blood pressure and things like that. So, you know, you you wouldn't be in good health, but your blood sugars would be good. Um, Yeah, Dr. Michael Greger's done a very good video on um, uh, what causes insulin resistance. Where he puts together research going back uh, going back to the 1930s mm. that actually points more to fats, particularly saturated fats. They get into the muscle cells and then the liver cells, and and um, if the insulin is the uh, key that unlocks the door that lets the glucose into the sugar into the cell, then then the saturated fat in particular, um, you know, gums up that lock so that insulin yeah, okay. no longer works. And I, I'm puzzled about why doctors don't know a bit about this, because I'm sure I learned decades ago that um, saturated fat tended to block the action of insulin. You know, that's not new information. And, and you know, you can, you can look at things, i like, to look at things at different levels it's like it's like when we look at cigarette smoking you know <laughs> we can look at animal studies yeah sorry animals were forced to smoke that was pretty cool yeah we can look at cell studies we can look at studies of populations of you know identical twins who smoked or didn't smoke etc and i guess it's the same with diabetes and you can look there you can look at the population level where you go oh so what happens when when uh i um Parts of China, when they used to live on mostly just rice and mostly white rice, even at that, um, well, they hardly had any diabetes, like China had an incidence of less than 1%. That was like back in 1970, 1980. Now it's like 12% plus and maybe half the population pre-diabetic. Um, And that's eating a lot less rice and a lot more pork and processed food. And then you can look at animal studies. And, uh, you know, I've laughed sometimes in the last few years. I remember seeing a report of a study being done at Baker IDI, one of our local research institutes in diabetes. And they are looking a promising new drug was being tested on mice on a fat-rich diet. Like, it wasn't mice on a high-carb diet yeah. or a sugar diet. No, those researchers knew how to make those diabetes-prone mice di- um, give them type 2 diabetes. They put them on a fat-rich diet. Yeah, right. And I remember Jenny and I at the time doing a Facebook post and sort of saying, look, silly mice, they should have just gone off their fat-rich diet <laughs> and they wouldn't have needed the diabetes drug.
0: Yeah. So how, you mentioned that you, you know, you're surprised that more doctors don't know about this stuff. So why don't they know about it? How, how come it doesn't come up more for uh, <coughs> doctors to know that, you know, this this whole food plant-based diet is the best way to treat diabetes? That's a, Do you have any thoughts on how that could be or is it?
1: Yeah. You know? Yeah. We all have yeah. confirmation bias. Yeah, you know, okay. we must be aware ourselves that we have confirmation bias that I will tend to pick out studies that look at the... <clears throat> benefits of plant-based diets maybe maybe without knowing it I'm ignoring studies that show that lean beef's good for you, I don't think so though yeah. you know I sometimes say that Michael Greger could be accused of uh, you know the nutritionfacts.org uh, yeah. uh, person, could be accused of cherry picking and that it's yeah. always in favour of plant-based diets and I say well he could be accused of cherry picking but that's where most of the cherries are yeah. <laughs> um, I, I think um, doctors I like that. <laughs> doctors don't know um you know um i don't like to be too conspiracy-minded there's all sorts of reasons you know that confirmation bias is a big one for people reporting on evidence for experts who should be telling the rest of the medical community about about information uh, about personal choices and whether we accept something this confirmation bias but um in the last couple of years we've been repeatedly struck by how our medical literature, um, you know, the medical magazines that come out to educate doctors, to educate GPs, how they continue to miss things. Um, The other day I read something about, well, osteoarthritis, like, oh, arthritis seems to be much less common among Asian and African populations compared to Caucasian. so maybe it's a genetic racial thing, and you go... Mm. No, probably not. It's probably just because the uh, traditionally in, in times gone in the past, it's changing now. Yeah. It was the European people that ate the uh, all the meat and dairy and the fat-rich diet, and so they had more arthritis. Um, things sometimes don't get published. Like uh, only about a month ago, there was a broad study in New Zealand yeah. where a couple of New Zealand young New Zealand doctors who interned with Dr. McDougall a few years earlier when they were still in medical school. Um, they did a study where they took 65 patients from a practice, you know, overweight, diabetes, etc., cetera, and, and divided them in two groups in this New Zealand town and gave the uh, intervention study group all this coaching and cooking lessons and got some of the local restaurants to provide suitable meals. And uh, there was no restriction of how much they had, but basically it was a McDougall diet. It was, you know, whole grains, legumes, potatoes, fruits, vegetables, not too many nuts, no oil, no animal products. And without any food rationing, just with instructing these people on how to do it, these people lost, uh, I think it was 11 and a half kilos in six months and kept oh, it wow. off for 12 months. And, and the, the comment on the research, and this was published in a peer-reviewed journal, one of yeah. the portfolio of the Nature group of journals. Um, th- it was commented that this is the greatest weight loss that's been seen in a, in a dietary intervention program that had no restriction on the amount of food you eat and didn't have an exercise program. Mm. Wow, that's big news. Did that appear in the um, Lifestyle Medicine newsletter in the Australian Doctor magazine, the weekly magazine, in Medical Observer? Did that appear either on the online you know, headline version of that or in the print versions? Not a word. I'm still mm. waiting for the report on it. And I just sort of, it's a sort of thing we've been asking ourselves lately. It's not part of a big, there's no big conspiracy, but its it's sort of like... Uh, what's going on here? Why couldn't they see that? Yeah. Sometimes you do suspect industry influence. Like when it came out, that there was a large Swedish study that found that women that ate, drank more liquid milk, like this looked at 40,000 women over a long period of time. Those women that drank more liquid milk got a higher mortality rate, like they died more. <laughs> and, and they actually had more fractures, not less. But they didn't find the same in the um, for yogurt and cheese consumption. So, yeah, right. the week the study came out, the long standing dairy um, dairy Australia advertisement with a picture of milk on the front suddenly changed to yogurt and cheese <laughs> and the journal didn 't report yeah. the study oh. We saw a similar thing happen when the yeah. um, when it was discovered that the choline high choline content in eggs led the body to produce tmaO, which is an artery toxin. And there were a lot of egg advertisements leading up to the publication. And there was a pause for a period of weeks or months when the study came out. There were suddenly no egg advertisements for those weeks. Uh, We sort of assumed the egg industry didn't want to be, you know, put themselves next to a study that showed that eggs had another bad thing about them, you know, the TMAO. But it wasn't reported.
0: Yeah. Damn. Didn't that just make you angry? It oh, work? it does. Look,
1: and I keep reading articles about the gut microbiome, a very topical in medicine yeah. at the moment. And, you know, a lot needs to be learned about this. And, um, and, and uh, I've read some articles where they suggest we could give probiotics or maybe some sort of selective antibiotic, or we could do a faecal transplant. That means take poo out of yeah. one person <laughs> and put it into another person, a poo transplant. Yeah. And, you know, poo transplants do actually have some therapeutic effect on yeah. um, um, some gut disease states. But in none of those articles did they seem to pick up the, a large journal, Nature Magazine, at the beginning of 2014, published a study and said, oh, look at this. It only took three days of eating a, um, uh, a high-fibre starch-based diet to turn everyone's gut microbes into a sort of fairly friendly good pattern, and only three, three day. days of meat and cheese and eggs to give them a, you know, inflammatory, associated with disease-type pattern. and None of my medical articles I read about the gut microbiome seem to have seen that. And then I read articles about prostate cancer. I'm sorry I'm going on about no, this, no, but keep it's, going. lately, Jenny and I have been going like, what's going on here? I mean, we know it's not a conspiracy, but like, what's going on here? Why can't the medical profession see this? Um, like, it, at least we've recently appreciated in medicine that, that um, often it's best not to do anything about prostate cancer, especially the lower Less malignant grades, particularly in the older men, it's it sort of been found that the interventions are often worse than doing nothing, and so there's this sort of watchful waiting term. And you think, look, two thousand and five, Dean Ornish published his prostate cancer study in a in a in a, a high ranking peer reviewed journal that showed that he could halt the growth of of low to moderate grade prostate cancer in older men. And you sort of think, why hasn't anyone seen that 2005 article? I sometimes wonder why the authors of some of this medical education, why the reporters... Uh, New Scientist is another one. New Scientist seems really blind to them. They recently had something on dementia and virtually nothing on the link between diet and dementia, which is fairly well established. And you sort of wonder why some of these medical educators, medical experts, journalists, haven't at least Googled their topic and yeah. kind of looked at a Gregor video.
0: Yeah, I can relate to that from, you know, again, back to my potato thing when everyone was... Uh, having their say on it and, uh, and you know, for someone to come out and say, that, oh, potatoes is going to be iron deficient. like, Hang on a second. Google's really simple. <laughs> <laughs> you know, mm. you could just Google the iron content of potatoes and you would see that I oh, wouldn't be iron deficient. Mm. So to, you know, to go back to your point about journalists not using just a simple Google search to just check out whether what they're writing is true or not. is,
1: Or, or um, nutritionists nutrition experts not opening up a food composition table you don't even have to buy one you can look it up online now Mm. like whenever i hear about the mediterranean diet and you know like eat three tablespoons of olive oil a day and for two thousand calorie a day person there's a quarter of your calories with no iron no calcium no protein Mm. no fiber and I sort of, with issues like um, the push to eat more olive oil, I sort of wonder why. I sort of keep sa- I was saying to Jenny there, Jenny, one day one of these Mediterranean diet enthusiasts is going to open up a food composition table and go, holy hell, this stuff's <laughs> junk food.
0: <laughs> yeah, one day. But whether they'll actually tell anyone else that they've done that is, a, is another thing. You know, the really
1: positive <laughs> thing here is that, that um, while our nutritionists, our dietitians, our doctors are sort of all heading down a blind alley and heading the wrong way, and they'll get beaten up down there <laughs> before they come out, and it'll take them along. It'll be a lot of shame and face-saving, and, oh, well, well, we've sort of changed our mind because things have changed now. Uh, It's going to be very hard for the Heart Foundation to turn around and sort of go, you know, how we said eggs were all right. Well, now we know they not only have cholesterol and no fiber, but they also give you, increase your blood TMAO, which is another risk. Mm. It's going to be hard for organizations like that to do a complete about face and, uh, you know, and sort of save face and, and keep their credibility. But on the positive side, what I was getting to is that that even if our nutritionists our doctors are not getting the right information people are finding out about this people are going online they're finding out the movement is really big in the u.s you know they're finding out about mcdougall they're finding about t Colin campbell they're finding it out about the hundreds of scientists and doctors in the u.s the research being done um Michael Greger calls it the democratisation of medical information where you no longer have to wait for it to come down from the university to the expert, to the doctors, to the patient. That I mean, there's a lot of misinformation. You can go and follow uh, Pete Watts' name and uh, yeah. <laughs> be brewing bone broth. <laughs> uh, but it, it people are finding out about it. Um, the vegan community in Australia is starting to find out that that, that they can be healthy as well as saving the animals. Yeah. And I'm seeing an increasingly number of number of people who have heart disease, rheumatoid arthritis, high blood pressure, who are seeing through the crack in the universe in Doctor Who terms, yeah. and finding finding this stuff from the USA. So that that's really heartening that people are finding out. While the great bulk of the population of Australia sort of are still heading in the wrong direction. Uh, a rapidly growing minority of finding out about it and i say that once people see it you know once they see the health benefits of eating whole plant foods you don't unsee it
0: yeah and i, I love that the the idea that um that you know it's obviously it's got its drawbacks but the idea that doctors and nutritionists are no longer the gatekeepers for knowledge you know people can if uh if they if they think that maybe there's another way they can go and find it for themselves and uh yeah i think it's it can only be positive even though there's so much misinformation out there i think if people are searching and um you know applying critical thought to what they're reading then they'll they'll end up at the right solution in the end um, yeah and there's a lot
1: of crap out there mm. but then yeah i sort of agree with you that it is good that people are finding out and able to find stuff even though there's a lot of misinformation out there. i mean it's always been like that you know there's there's always been patients who have got some idea about their treatment or their diagnosis that they heard from their neighbor's cousin <laughs> so it's, it's nothing new to have you know wacky misinformation out there
0: yeah um so have you you know you you're you're a a part of a rare breed, a plant-based doctor, have you had much, um, you know, resistance from a professional point of view? Uh, have you had troubles with, uh, you know, recommending eating plants to people? Have you had... How's that going for you?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, fortunately, you know, I, I'm i not telling people to... Um, that they must not take any medications or they must yeah. cancel their cancer surgery or whatever... Uh, and I'm promoting a dietary approach that can actually be fitted to the Australian dietary guidelines. So I've, I've never been I've never been uh, pursued by the medical board or, yeah. or, uh, or or fear that I'll be pursued by them yeah. because there's, there's nothing I'm really doing that's not based on evidence yeah. uh, As far as colleagues go, yes I have had some kickback yes yes yeah. as. Uh, Someone I work with who's often sort of brought it to my attention that, hey, Malcolm, you know, not everyone's happy about how keen you are about, you know, plant-based diet and things. You know, some people are not happy about that at all. It might not be very good for this practice. Uh, You know, and I see a patient, I remember one particular patient, uh, he was really worried because he had a strong family history of prostate cancer. And mm. I ordered his blood test. And I obviously, you know, I'm ethically obliged. If someone comes to see me, if they're covered in acne and want to do something about it, um, it would be wrong. It would be unethical for me not to tell them there's a link with dairy foods. Yeah. Or in this case, the man who's worried about prostate cancer, middle-aged man who's, you know, relatives had it at a relative fairly young age. It would be unethical for me not to tell him that there was strongly associated with diet and the dairy foods in particular were something associated with increased prostate cancer so i did i don't tell him anyway he went back to one of the other doctors for his results and it got fed back to me that you know this patient was really was not was was complained about you because he said that you told him to stop having milk (laughs) so yeah Yeah. that's the sort of kickback i do i get there's something else that happens with patients you know I think I think I elucidated someone else on this the other day. It's like people who are already in the plant-based community imagine that someone comes into me, you know, 30 year old lady, she's a PCOS, you know, she's had a gallbladder out, she's still taking acne drugs as if she's a teenager, etc. And, you know, and and people from the plant-based community goes, think, I say to her, oh, well, you know, if you stop dairy food and chicken and start to eat more potatoes and things, <laughs> and you expect that the patient said, gee, doc, I'm so happy. Really great <laughs> to have someone to give me this news. No, that's not always yeah, the okay. case. You know, I, I, I actually do get, I do notice we did this um, patient satisfaction survey and um, the branch of the practice I work at had more people saying that they were happy that they were very satisfied to have more um, uh, keeping healthy information, given lifestyle advice given to them. But back to the person who you from the plant based community would say, "Gee doc, thanks for telling me about. I never knew that the cheese <laughs> and chicken did that to me." No, some of them just about thump the table. This frown at you. The guys sort of looking, they have this yeah. steel look, have this steely look that goes right through you. Although I remember one man. As I was saying to him, "All oh, right, here's your cholesterol tablet. You've only come to see me for a repeat." But you know, if you eat more of these foods, it'll go up, and more of these foods, it'll go down. And while I'm the whole time, I'm sort of talking to him, he just repeats, "My mother had high cholesterol. My grandmother had high cholesterol. My mother had high cholesterol." <laughs> it's like, la la la. Yeah, just give so, me the pills, doc. <laughs> yeah, just, just, just stop that. Do, but um, yeah, you, you do. You'd be surprised. You'd be really surprised. Um, from the plant-based community perspective about just how sensitive an issue it is um mm. you know I, I'm, I'm i sound sexist but the 30 year old woman demographic i find the one i have to be most subtle and careful right. about i aim it at people often just speaking in general terms like if i'm prescribing the ch- with, if it's about cholesterol i say to someone you know whatever level your cholesterol starts at genetically you know family wise yeah. if you mm-hmm. eat more um Chicken. I start with chicken because yeah. everyone thinks that it's health food. If you yeah. eat more chicken, fish, meat, eggs, dairy, etc., your cholesterol will go up. And if you eat more oats and beans and whole plant foods, it will go down. So you see, that's not actually telling them that they're that it's not. It, it's acknowledging that yes, yes, it's it's probably all genetic. Yeah. And but it's also sort of just reminding them. It's not saying how much cheese do you eat. It's just saying you know if you eat more of these foods, your d- disease, your condition will go in this direction. Same with acne. You know, I'm not going to tell them, like, how much cheese do you eat? And when they say to me, when I'm saying to them, well, you know, dairy foods are associated with more acne. When they go, I don't eat much dairy, um, which means, you know, that they just have, you know, a glass of milk a day and a tub of yogurt and a cheese meal and maybe a bit of whey protein bar. (laughs) But I I don't even try and remind them that they actually, you know, that when they say, I don't eat much dairy, they probably actually eat quite a lot. Um, I stay away from that and just try and keep it like you know. I'm not trying to shame you. Try and keep it so you're not shaming or embarrassing them, but you're just letting them know, giving them that information that you know um, when it's when you know research shows that when people eat more dairy, it's sort of associated with more acne, and then it's up to them to interpret that. And I I've sometimes even make a note on the patient's file, like not very receptive to diet. And that's a reminder for me not to not to uh, mention it next time because they actually seem quite cross yeah. about it. <laughs> yeah. What's really surprising and what what I've said to uh Gism the other week was that when weeks and weeks or months later, the same person says to you, now I was thinking about changing my diet to help this condition uh, <laughs> and yeah. I'm sort of eating more whole grains now. And you yeah. sort of think, like, what you yeah. actually listened or you yeah. heard someone else oh, that must be Peter. nice it really is very yeah. nice yeah, yeah Cool. Yeah. all
0: right so uh, a hypothetical here uh you know tomorrow morning or sometime next week you get a phone call from uh, malcolm turnbull the prime minister of australia and he says malcolm we need you to take over as minister for health what what would be your uh plan of attack is that something you've thought about? How how would we turn around the health of Australia with uh, with Dr Malcolm Mackay as health minister? Any ideas?
1: If I was just restricting it to Medicare rebates, I'd rebate doctors for the length of the time they spent with patients. All oh, right. I would okay. make an 18 yeah. minute consult pay more than a six minute consultation. Oh, okay. You know, it's like they keep going on about you know want doctors to spend more time, do more chronic disease. Um, management, more counselling, and and yet the Medicare rebate's the same between about six minutes and – it's not – between six minutes and 19 minutes, it's the same rebate. All right. So uh, I'm fully aware that if I stop and spend a few minutes telling people that, uh, you know, what else will make their cholesterol go up and down or help their acne – um, it's sort of like I'm doing it in my own time. Yeah. You know, I'll end up seeing less patients per hour and being paid less. And I think that really needs to be addressed. That's mm. a big disincentive. You know, If you want doctors to do more lifestyle medicine, the Medicare rebate needs to be a bit more time-based. But that that's being very looking at the minutiae. What would I do? Well, I'd be understanding that health was um, uh, outside of the health system and that the disease management system... Wasn't really the key to uh, improving the health in the country. That while my colleagues all seem very fixed on like cardiovascular risk management, we'll give you a tablet if your cholesterol is high. No, not everyone who's cholesterol high will be really clever and will we'll look at your blood pressure and your age and your cholesterol and diabetes and will calculate what your chance is. We'll look up the chart or. <coughs> And we'll see what absolute risk you're likely to be at in the next five or ten years. And then we'll, on that decision, we'll treat your risk factors. We'll give you a tablet for cholesterol. We'll make sure we get tablets for blood pressure and get it down to target. Yeah. We'll add two tablets if it's not good enough or three. Um, we'll treat you diabetes. That's, that's how we look at disease risk management at the moment and... Uh,
0: you I know, have no idea of any of this. So they're so actually getting medication before you've got an, a major issue. As, yeah, as yeah. A, it's how we manage risk levels. Wow. It's like
1: <laughs> it's like rather than treating the cause, it's you know, like Ornish and everyone else says, it's like you know, we're mopping up around an overflowing sink w- without turning off the tap. You yeah. know, we're, we're not actually addressing why this person's got insulin high blood pressure and they're heading to diabetes and the cholesterol's high and things. We're treating them as isolated things with ignoring the lifestyle. Um, if I was the health minister, I would be trying to make it more, um, a, a more an across society thing like bringing a multi sectorial I don't know if that's the buzzword for it. In other words, I'd be working yeah. against the nutrition side of things and mm. I'd probably be assassinated really quickly. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> the big cow would come to my door and beat <laughs> me up, the man yeah. in the cow suit. Yeah, um, no, um. Yeah, I I think uh, we should immediately have um, health warnings on processed meat. There's no excuse for that. I mean, it's a class one carcinogen. Yeah,
0: if it's good enough for cigarettes, it should be good enough for other things that fall in the same category as cigarettes, surely. Yeah, um, but yeah, as you yeah. found out
1: when you were trying to uh, not do moderation and yeah. quit something as in quit addictive eating, you yeah. had to eat something. Yeah. And I guess that's why how food gets away with it as well. You know, if you only had meat, you could live on mostly meat and it'd be better than nothing. Yeah. And you do have to eat. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. you know, that that's sort of how how we how we get to a point where we don't sort of just say no to processed meat mm. or even red meat or dairy. Um, Yes, I think we'd be working very hard to sort of um, bring in some nutrition education for the public and to uh, fight back against uh, the success of meat egg and dairy and i'm saying that with my eyes rolling to myself going yeah. <laughs> you know you, you're not going to win against that opposition it's mm. like try and bring in a carbon tax and reduce greenhouse gas emissions in a country that has um has a huge coal base and see yeah. what happens <laughs> you get kicked out of office and it'll get reversed yeah yeah um, that
0: happened happened pretty quickly yeah so last last question then uh similar question but you're you're now the head of the CSIRO, so Australia's biggest um, science body, and uh, and you you, well maybe not the head of the whole thing, but you're the head of the nutrition part of it. So, what sort of uh, studies would you like to see done, and what would you be um, organising if uh, you know if in the perfect world you could organise whatever study you you wanted? Um, have you is that something you've thought about? Is that, Gee, do you have any no, ideas?
1: no, I haven't, but um, yeah. when you talk about that, it's a very good point that um you know th- that who funds research does determine what the outcome i think in the u s um I can't remember her name, I think it was marion Nestle uh looked into this and found that most research funded by the soft drink or sugar industry um didn't find it too bad um <laughs> you know most of the studies that are funded by an industry i mean you know, if you're in a university department and you're doing research and get a lot of Dairy Australia uh, funding for your research department over the years, you're not really going to be um, out there on the attack and trying to find a link between, you know, dairy protein and cancer or something like that. Um, so um, yeah, the funding source it doesn't necessarily mean people make people mean that people are going to cheat on the research. But it's just a sort of design that's going to be done. Like all the uh, olive oil research done at La Trobe University, that'll be designed to look at the benefits of polyphenols in extra virgin olive oil. Yeah, It won't be done to see whether the polyphenols in whole wheat or blueberries are better than the ones in yeah. uh, in olive oil. Um, yeah, if I, was head of, if I was in charge of nutrition at CSIRO, day one, there shall be no books with the name CSIRO in it. Unless yeah. it's approved by the department and there's, you know, a fair bit of committee consensus the the, the dietary practices that are advocated in this CSIRO diet book are um, in line with the best science.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's a, that's probably, the, uh, it's not what the answer I expected. I thought you'd talk about exactly what kind of study you wanted to be done, but yeah, the books are the things that have the biggest influence that CSIRO does, isn't it? Like, that's what
1: uh, There's this other stuff that comes out as well. And, um, <coughs> I'd be trying to focus, um, you know, I know it's much easier. You can do much more papers, you know, publish or perish. If you want to um, do some research that's relatively straightforward, straightforward as research can be, and where you're likely to actually get some meaningful results, you want to look at some minutiae, hmm. you know. You want to look at the antioxidant effect on cells of the uh, polyphenol in olive oil or something like that. Um but uh, you want to do very reductionist focused research, you know, a new the effect of something on a on a mouse on a fat rich diet. Um, but uh, I think I'd be pushing it towards more actual research out there in the population. And thinking of that broad study I mentioned in New yep. Zealand, where they actually did a community community research project where they got people in the community to. Um, um, change their diet and then measured the effects of it. So I would guess I'd be pushing, I'd be sort of thinking, look, it, it's still good to be doing more research on the fine details. But seeing we already have so much knowledge about what makes humans healthy, we should be doing more research on how to um, implement dietary lifestyle programs that do what we know makes humans more healthy. like well, if we do this sort of intervention like the broad study or some school-based program, um, what will the outcomes be? Um, Some uh, doctor friends of mine were thinking of doing some uh, study on uh, pregnancy and, like, if we did a project where we intervened um, in the women who are pregnant and helped them to eat a really healthy diet, what would the outcomes be in their pregnancy? You know, would would less of them, um, you know, would they have better pregnancy outcomes for themselves and their babies? And, um, yeah, I think we need to do a lot more research like that.
0: Yeah, that's a, a really interesting point as well because I think uh, most people, well, pretty much everyone really knows that ice cream is not good for you, right? But people who are hugely overweight and having massive health problems still continue to eat ice cream even though they know that it's a bad idea. So, yeah, the knowledge maybe. Yeah, you know, not every, not many people probably know that whole about whole food plant based diets and that sort of thing, but they do know that they shouldn't be eating ice cream. So to me, that says exactly what you were talking about. That uh, just making these healthy habit changes stick is is the hardest thing. That's the thing that uh, is probably most important. And even if people don't change to whole food plant based eating, if they stop eating ice cream and chocolate bars, that's a big step in the right direction. But so many people can't do it, even though they know they should. So, every yeah.
1: step, every step you take towards whole plant foods will get better health outcomes. And this is why these Mediterranean diet studies—the whole Mediterranean diet thing makes me cringe. Yeah. <laughs> but this is why the Mediterranean diet studies, or, or the study in Melbourne, a Mediterranean diet with red meat. Yeah, of course, those women got healthier and fed, felt better because they just took one step in the direction of eating more uh, whole plant foods. In this case, eating more, you know, grains and, and legumes and uh, fruits and vegetables, for example.
0: Yeah, well, uh, it's I remember reading about a study a uh, a while ago. I probably can't even find it now, but there was uh, somebody did a study where they went to. Um, the third world Africa or somewhere like that uh, where people were starving and they fed them meat for a couple of weeks and they got healthier and uh, and so they said yeah there you go meat is healthy but it's like hang on <laughs> meat is definitely better than starving which is what they were before you turned up but let's not take that as a conclusion that meat is healthy and uh, yeah I guess that's a similar thing to you know if we if we eat a Mediterranean diet with heaps of olive oil it's better than eating mcdonald's every day but that doesn't make it good (laughs) no Uh, and i think uh, in
1: nutrition we often often do this it's like well olive oil is better than butter (laughs) (laughs) or lean meat's better than fatty meat yeah but it's like when people ask me the question about the oil Uh, you know which oil should i eat coconut oil canola oil um olive oil you know, and it's sort of like, yeah, well, ask me which cigarette to smoke. Um, <laughs> you know, there are some that are really mild and low in tar and things, you know, but I'm not going to recommend you smoke
0: those cigarettes. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good way to look at it. <laughs> All right. Well, we should wrap this up. But uh, last question, back to the, uh, the idea of trying to figure out how to make the diet stick. Do you have, uh, if you've got a patient that comes to you and they're like, I really want to change my diet, I'm struggling... Uh, with making the habit change stick, um, do you have a bit of advice that you would give to someone in that category?
1: Um, yes, I think you, you need to have the information, w- whether that's, uh, you know, I, direct, I, I, I Jenny, my partner and I have a, a large website, which is um, in part for, uh, for patient education, patient information. And so I'll often point them towards that.
0: Yeah. Wholefoodplantbasedhealth.com.au? Yep, yep. I always get confused. Is it the whole food with an S on the end of foods or just food? yeah, yeah? <laughs> Nowadays,
1: uh, T Colin Campbell doesn't put an S on the end. It's just yeah. whole food, plant based. Yeah. When we put when we named our website, we we actually had an S on the end, yeah. like cause it's Whole Foods, plant based health. Yeah. Okay. I'll put com. a link OU. in the in yeah. The you Put show a link in there, anyway, yeah. and and our Facebook page. We we also use uh, another other uh, na- registered name which is uh plant-based health australia it's yep. probably the one we should have used on our website yeah. to start with it's easier to remember um so i point them to my website which yep. um you know has information and links to other people's information like you might say to someone look have a look at nutritionfacts.org you know michael Greger's mm-hmm. site and have a look at dr and uh you know, here's a book. This book would be most suitable for you. I recommend this particular book.
0: Right, can you give us a few books then? What, give me five books. <laughs>
1: Dr. McDougall, The Starch Solution. Yeah. Uh, Prevent and Reverse Heart Disease by yep. Caldwell Esselstyn. Yeah. Um, the China Study Solution by Thomas Campbell. It was okay. previously published under the name The Campbell Plan. Okay. Uh, yeah, it, it's you can buy it as an e book and it's much shorter than the China study yep. and sort of covers a, quite a bit of that information. Like no, I haven't uh,
0: read that one. Does that give you diet tips and things like that? It, as well? it does and it gives okay. you practical tips as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Is it's that something of, that it's like the
1: Reader's yeah. Digest version of, um, of the China study, yeah, okay, yeah. followed by uh, practical information, the yeah. China study yeah. solution. Um, that'd be some of the ones. And I'd yeah. also recommend to people that. Um, that That um that they sort of have some ongoing support that'd be really good if they could uh, find people who are supportive, maybe come to a plant powered Melbourne meetup. That's the new yep. group, you know that's comes out of the plant pure Nation community yep. grassroots program idea.
0: And, and, I've, and I've been to one or two of those. It was really nice yeah. to be able to sit around and, it, it, when I went last, uh, I was eating only potatoes and nobody cared. That was nice. <laughs>
1: and then I'd join up. Then I'd be thinking of um, using some of the um, – uh, uh, joining up in an online community. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, there's there some huge um, McDougall groups, but here locally, there's uh, Whole Foods, Plant Based Aussies. Yeah, that's a really great group too, which now yeah. has about four or five thousand people. Is it that par- many now? Yeah, right. it might even have reached five. My partner Jenny's now they've got five admins, including yeah. Jenny, but not me because I'd be too strict. I'd be <laughs> I'd be doing too much exterminating.
0: Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that's a, a good place to end it. Uh, so, yeah, read some books. Go to holdfoodsplantbasedhealth.com.au au and uh, and get some support and uh, yeah you can you can get healthy very quickly. Uh, all right, thank you, Dr Malcolm Mackay, for joining me on the Spud Fit podcast, and thank you also for not letting me die last year doing my potato challenge. And uh, yeah, thank you.
1: <laughs> thank you, Andrew. I'm honoured to be on your
0: podcast. All right, let's do it again sometime. Yep. Cheers. sput up. All right. There you have it. Dr. Malcolm Mackay. I am forever indebted to uh, Dr. Malcolm and isn't he great? Isn't he just a great guy? <laughs> I'm sure you love him as much as I do now uh so yeah there you have it the uh episode 13 of the spud fit podcast uh and i i'm really happy with that that was a good one that was a really great inc- uh, conversation for me and uh and i hope you guys enjoyed it too and i hope you learned something from it now i don't actually have any more episodes pre-recorded so i'm not sure when i will uh, be talking to you guys again hopefully very soon like i said at the start though i'm not Sure, when this is going to happen again? Because, uh, like I said, priorities. Uh, things have to happen, and I can't afford to spend too much time on making these. So I'm working on uh, on some different things, some ways that I can make this a little bit more streamlined as far as the time that it takes me to do it, and uh, and also possibly some uh, some uh, a Patreon page, like I said at the beginning of the episode. Anyway thanks everyone for listening uh and again if you're interested if you need some comfortable and uh organic and you know artsy track pants go to thedaquiri.com and get yourself the world's comfiest perts well sorry i can't talk the world's comfiest pairs of pants cover your bum in art art for your ass all right that's it from me today uh, oh, no, it's not. I forgot to mention that you can join the Spud Fit Challenge if you like. If you're uh, interested in doing a potato-only challenge for yourself, then go to spudfit.com and click on the Take the Challenge tab and you'll see all the information you need there. All right. Thanks, everyone. Uh, hopefully, I'll speak to you again soon. Spud up.